Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, we do praise you, Father, that you have just been an awesome, awesome God, that you love us, Father, in spite of ourselves, that we can be crushed and and put down, Father, but we're never uh, cast away, we're never abandoned, Father, that uh, we can uh, withstand the beatings of this world, Father, by your power of the spirit of your strength, which you are freely giving to all of us. Father, do a mighty work here today open our hearts and our minds to see you in a new way. Father, we give you this time in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been talking about Jesus and going through the whole book of Luke. We're seeing that Jesus is coming onto the scene to do a new work. He's coming into the world which is cold and dead and stale. And Jesus wants to bring forth life and to bring forth a, a, a new harvest, if you would. We see that terminology through so much of the parable of the sower. And, and, and God is planting a, a vineyard. He's doing a work on the planet, and he wants to bring forth life. Please don't ever come up with a different view of Christ that would contradict that view, because he's always creating, working, planning, and he wants to do a new work in your life. That's the beauty of the, the gospel message. God wants to take my raggedy, trashy life and he wants to make it into something beautiful. That's what gives us excitement. That's what gives us joy as Christians. But obviously you're going to see that there's a massive train wreck that's about to happen. There's a clash of forces where the dead, stale life of Judaism, Israel, is going to clash with Jesus who's trying to do something new and wonderful. Doesn't it always seem to work that way when something good is trying to happen? It seems that a conflict seems to always want to drag you down and to make you so you can just never succeed. And here Jesus is trying to do a wonderful work in that, that, that clash of forces with, with the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the legalistic people, and they're going to try and kill him. So you can see the scene now as we come into Luke chapter 22. It says, verse 1, he says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. So it's to be a feast, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. You know, this is, it's a sad verse just to read that. Here it's the feast. It's supposed to be a party of unleavened bread, which is supposed to be a seven-day festival, which would take its highlight, the end of it would climax into Passover. For the Jew in Israel, it should be a time of celebration, a wild party. God told the Jews that they were supposed to come to Jerusalem three times a year, take a week off from the farm, and come on in and have a, you know, a big old hoedown party. God wanted it to just be a celebration. You're supposed to take your tithes as a Jew... Bring the money to Jerusalem and spend it on a party on yourself. That's what you are supposed to do. 
and you would say, well, gee, this is great. I'm going to take, you know, some of my, my uh, sheep, my harvest, and I'm going to bring it in, and, and we need to celebrate a, a, the Passover. Passover was an exciting, wonderful time where they would remember and reflect on what? God's glory, God's power. They were always to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. They were always to remember that they were oppressed people. And God raised up Moses, and Moses delivered the ten plagues, and God liberated the people. And God's plan was every year, you just throw the biggest shingding you can, and you celebrate that. Don't you ever forget the good old days of God working in your life. All right. It was supposed to be uh, uh, precipitated by uh, uh, seven days of, of the... Uh, unleavened bread, which would be a time for them to take the yeast out of the house, a, a picture of sin. It was a time to settle down in purity and to focus on God. And then finally remember where God sent the death angel on Egypt and crushed it. And those who took the sacrifice and trusted in the Lord, the death angel would pass over them. And so every Jew should be turning around and saying at this time of the year, Wow, we got a great God. Wow, we got a great God. And unfortunately, if you would look at the scene, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread as they drew near. It's called Passover. Oh, and here are the chief priests, the scribes, and what are they doing? They're grinding their teeth in anger, and they're, they're seeking, and, and they sought how they might kill him, and they're living in fear of people. You can't find a, a greater dichotomy, a, a greater problem as the situation of Israel. I should be happy now. I should be wondering about the wonderful thing God's doing. But I'm mad and I'm going to kill. Ooh, I'm mad. And God, you know, he's looking at this and he says, what a mess. What a mess. Man, you should be, you should be having a, a party. And so if you would, the, the fight's on. Jesus has been speaking directly against the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests, you know, these religious leaders of Israel. And he's trying to liberate the people, and he wants to do a new work with that as a background. And if that's not enough, then you get the, uh, the problem of the little old devil has to sneak in on top of it. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve, one of Jesus' faithful, if you would, Satan is going to enter into this guy, Judas. So he went his way, and he conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. So what's bringing celebration to get to do business with Satan? Oh, this is great news. We'll do business with the devil. And so they're going to conspire to kill and to murder, and they're going to agree to give him money. It's amazing how they would just part with cash so quickly if they could get a murder on their hands. And so he promised, Judas's end of the deal, was he promised and he sought an opportunity to portray him to them in the absence of the multitude. In other words, the Jews knew, as it says, that they were afraid of the people. They knew that the people, the average Jew on the street, loved Jesus. Jesus is talking about liberty and life and freedom. 
And the religious people, they wanted to control and to manipulate. And they said, man, all the people, they love this Jesus guy. We got to get rid of him. He's bad for business. And we're going to kill him so that we can manipulate the masses. And we got to do this behind their back. A little trickery, a little deception. And so Judas's whole plan, I suppose they didn't have to pay anybody, but they go, we want to get this guy in, in the night. We want to get this guy behind everyone's back. We want to do this deed of killing him quickly, silently, and just get rid of him and say, what, Jesus? I never heard of him. But so the day of celebration starts, verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And there was a picture there of Moses said, go kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost so the death angel would pass over. And you're going to see that Jesus, Jesus fulfills that role of the sacrificial lamb. And then it's his blood that causes the death angel to pass over you and I. That's where we get that terminology of when we are in Christ, we want to be washed by the blood. And then we believe we have everlasting life by the blood of Jesus because it's a sacrifice. And God recognizes that sacrifice because we're trusting in that so that death would pass over. Beautiful similarities here between Jesus and the Passover lamb and the Passover lamb. We can develop that a little bit later on in the text. But they're telling you how these things just uh, come together perfectly on the timeline. And so, as it's getting to be that time of celebration, he sent Peter and John, two of his faithful disciples, and he's saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. We need to go have some digs. Go get a hotel room. Go get some things set up so that we can sit down there and enjoy the Passover. And so they said to him, well, where do you want us to prepare? What do you mean, go give us some information, Jesus? And he said to them, behold, when you enter the city, a man will meet you, and this is how you're going to tell who he is. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. You follow him into the house which he enters, and then you shall say to the master of the house, because you're not going to meet the master first, whoever this guy carrying the pitcher of the water, water would be would be a servant, but you're then going to go up to the master of the house and say, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. Now, once again, this is a strange part of the story that seems to be included in each one of the synoptic gospels. And I always find it amazing they want to throw this tidbit of information in. Uh, we talked about how Jesus had to ride in on a donkey and he had to say, go down the street, grab the guy's donkey. And if, if he asks you what you're doing with it, you just tell him the Lord has need of it. And I read this, and it sounds very similar. Now, I suppose some people would understand this passage and say, well, Pastor Dave, you know, Jesus had prepared with some guy beforehand. There's some people that would be waiting for Jesus to show up, and he already had all this prearranged, and he's sending out his disciples to go take care of the arrangements that Jesus has already made. And, uh, and hence, you know... Uh, these guys are going to be walking, you know, into something that was already set up. But I read this, and I don't think it really lays out that way. I really believe that Jesus didn't have anything pre-planned before this moment. I really believe that he's really saying, well, in order for you to find out where I need to go, I want you to walk down the street, and when you see a guy, 
you know, is going to come up to you. He's carrying a pitcher of water. Now, I don't think of that as a starkly huge, strange, bizarre sight, you know, someone carrying a pitcher of water. I've heard arguments that people would say, well, women normally get the water. They get the water in the morning. They get it in the cool of the evening. And, you know, it would be a strange sight for a man to be carrying water. I don't buy that story. I, I think it's almost as common as someone carrying a pitcher of water as if Jesus walked up to us today and says, hey, I need a place to go. I want you to walk down Livingston, and when you see a, a man, you know, with an Ohio State Buckeye cap on, I want you to go and talk to him. And you'd go, well, I think half the people in the community got an Ohio State Buckeye cap on. <laughs> Jesus, uh, you know, can you give me some, like, specifics, you know? What street? Where do you want me to go? What's happening? And I, I, I really see that he's saying, I want you to walk down the street, grab hold of this guy. One guy, you just say, now, you walk up to his master and say, well, where are we supposed to be? I find that if Jesus did not have this as a pre-planned, arranged scenario, that then this would be a very offensive statement. Where are we supposed to be? Let's go to your house. What do you got for Passover? And everybody is probably making some arrangements for all their family and relative to get together for the holidays. And then the guy would say, well, right up here, we got it all set up. All we need is you guys to sit down. Just happen to have some extra space for 12, and you can have this whole room to yourself. And I, I really do see that this is a, a, a picture. And within the text of Jesus marching into a fight, you're also seeing with little snippets of stories like this where Jesus is teaching us a little bit about walking in the Spirit that sometimes that we need to trust in the Lord to provide and to go forward and to make an assumption that God's going to take care of us. How's that for an answer? Sometimes there's the, the, the part about this little story here is that there's an assumption that everything is taken care of, and if it wasn't pre-planned, then it would be a very bold message on you and I to be able to say, well, when I go forward, I, I need to just trust, I need to walk in the Spirit this way. Sometimes to be obedient, to go forward, and expecting that when I get there, it will be taken care of. That's a, a little insight sometimes for you and I to be able to trust God. You need to be able to say, Lord, I have no idea where we're going or how we're supposed to get there, but you obviously do. I'm going to go march down the street. I'm going to expect that when I get there, it will be taken care of. And I, I believe that one of the parts of being a a born-again Christian, is a, a, having a, a sense of mystery in our life. And, and if your Christianity removes the mystery, the faith aspect of life, I really think you're doing a disservice. We, we want everything. Tell me what's going to happen when I'm 20, when I'm 30, when I'm 40, when I'm 50. I want to know exactly what's going to happen with my life, Lord, and I want to know right now, and I'm going to make things happen to go according to my plan. And when you're filled with the Spirit of the Lord, uh, there's an awful lot of that, uh, I don't know particularly what I'm going to do with my life, and I don't know. God told me to go to Oklahoma. I'm going to get there. When I get there, I'll figure out what I'm going to do for work when I'm there. But I know God's called me to Oklahoma. And that's sometimes appropriate as a believer, to be able to be open and to say, Lord, you're telling me where to go, and I just want to go, and I'm not going to have all the details of my life worked out. It's a strange little story. I, you can disagree with me on some of that. 
and some people read a little bit more into some of these things, but I, I really see that as much as there's a guy that's going to come out and greet them, I see that, but there's still that mystery involved. Everything's going to be taken care of. So we go into verse 13. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So it wasn't that Jesus had it prepared, but they had to go and get all the little, you know, salt water, this, that, and all the other things that they have is through their ceremony to do their Seder. And I think last uh, Passover we celebrated the Seder here and what the Jews did, and it was very powerful to see the illustrations of Jesus in that Passover meal. But he says, verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with them, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat uh, this Passover with you before I suffer. So what is he saying? He's got a, a fervent desire. He goes, man, I have wanted to do this for so long. This is finally coming down to the moment. I've been talking, teaching, and, and now it's coming down to the rubber meets the road, as you would. And he goes, I have been waiting in eager expectation for this night. This is, whoo, this is a great night. Man, I can hardly wait for it. Man, and what is he saying? Before I suffer. Uh, Jesus, being son of God, I think he knows full well and told us full well already that he's going to go to the cross and suffer and die. He goes, I'm dead. I'm going to go through a very ugly, hard, difficult evening. And he's saying, I wanted to spend it with you, and, and you are the one that I've desired to sit down and talk to you. And isn't that kind of a big compliment? What would you do if somebody said, you know, Dave, Pastor Dave, I'm getting ready to die tomorrow. They're going to electrocute me tomorrow, and I'm going to be dead. And my last night, I'd like to sit down and talk to you. You'd go, me? Wow, that's, that's powerful. You know, what a compliment to whatever food that you would like that you would say, this was what I want as my last meal. And Jesus is saying, I know what's going on in front of me. I know what my big day is. And you know what? I want to spend it with you. And I, I, I find that that's amazing that, that Jesus says, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And the word fervent is not in the original text, but the word desire means uh, with inside of itself to, to strongly wish that he could have something. And he's saying, I care about you, disciples. I love you guys. And with that as a background, uh, he says, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. So he's going to take the, the drink, and he's giving th thanks, and there's a whole lot to what's actually happening with inside of the Passover, of which cup this is. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And I like that, where all of a sudden you're saying, uh, that he wants to sit down. Did I just skip a verse? No, okay. And so he's saying, he goes, hey, until the kingdom of God comes. And then he, he says it uh, again. He says, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after the, sup the supper, saying, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. You're watching a, a, a lot of things start to happen here. And, and, and I, we take communion every Wednesday, uh, the first Wednesday of every month and the first Sunday of every month. And we're not going to take communion today. And, and I, 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 I kind of enjoy that concept because we need to sometimes look at things with fresh eyes. And, and sometimes to be able to look at what Jesus is doing here as he's saying a couple very important things. First off, he's saying, we're going to drink again. Happy days are going to come sometime in the future. You, you, do you hear that? That clearly Jesus is saying the, the good wine is going to be when we're together again. Backing up a couple sermons, we talked about Jesus on the Mount of Olivet. And as he's on the Mount of Olives, we talked about the parable of the vineyard. And we talked about that there were several phases of, uh, of, of Jesus being in the vineyard. One was a gathering, and I like that illustration, where he's gathering his people together. The second one was a crushing, and we know that you'd crush grapes. And then he's clearly bringing out the concept of a fermentation. He's telling you that in, uh, we got grapes, we crushed the grapes, and now we have to. There has to be a time to allow things to mellow, to work, to ferment in your life. And and for you and I, one of the things about walking in the Spirit of God is to sometimes be patient enough to be able to. Lord, in your time, this will become right. That goes against all of our ways of a human. We want it now, we want it straightened out, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make this right so we can you know, sleep tonight. And, and sometimes you have to be able to say, Lord, in your time, in a future. And Jesus is looking and he's saying, it's my last day. These are the things that are happening as we're taking communion, and this is going to be a farewell for now type event. And he definitely wants to be able to turn around and to say, I'm doing some other things here. This is the body and the blood of Jesus. You're seeing the illustration of the Passover lamb, of the, 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 the sacrifice and the blood that needed to be shed. And he's clearly, clearly turning around and he's making a new covenant, a new arrangement where the Jews in the Old Testament, they had the opportunity for a Passover lamb, a little baby sheep, slice its throat and you get to put the blood on the door and that blood protected you. And Jesus is going to come up and he's going to say there's going to be a completely new approach between you and God based upon my blood. And there's a, a typology where things would be similar in some ways, but please understand that Jesus is instituting a whole, and he says, new covenant. And a covenant is merely a, 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 an arrangement on two parties to be able to function. Uh, I'll tell you right off the bat that a covenant is not a promise, an oath, or a contract. 
but a covenant is, is, is a completely different animal. If you thought about as what a covenant, uh, a contract would be, if I contracted you to paint my house, I would say, you do the painting and I'll give you the $10,000 or whatever I think it's worth to pay the ha paint the house. That, and you'd set up a contract. You do yours and I'll do mine. And if you don't do yours, I'll take you to court and sue you. And it's a legal binding contract. And it's on how two parties can learn how to function. Uh, a covenant supersedes that. It, it, it has some of those flavors of, a, of a, an arrangement between two parties, but what it does is it takes the two parties and doesn't say, you're on this side and I'm on this side. It turns around and it says, we're both on the same side. A covenant is what puts two as one and makes them on the same side. So now in marriage is a covenant and our relationship with God is a covenant. It's no longer God, you sit down there and keep the blessings flowing and I'll keep going to church on Sunday. That's a contract. And God says, we're not in a contract, we're in a covenant. And Jesus institutes a covenant. When you believe in the blood of Jesus, you're now on God's side. And you're now working with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, And now working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so if you could, the Bible clearly says, you and God are on the same side. It's not you against God anymore when you enter into the new covenant. You're on the same side as God. And God's no longer your enemy. He's no longer the person out there that you've got to work with, deal with. And, and if he doesn't hold up his end of the deal, you, you're going to sue him. And if you don't hold up your end of the deal, you're going to get sued. That's a gross misnomer of what a covenant is. You're on the same side. And so if you would, Jesus is instituting a new covenant and he's doing it in the same model, fashion of the old covenant by instituting it with blood. And he is going to say, I'm going to become the perfect sacrifice. But he wants to be able to say, when you do take communion, which is something that's offered through the church, you want to be able to say, Lord, I'm, I'm coming into a contract, an agreement, an oath, and a promise, but I'm coming into a, a covenant with you. I'm surrendering and I'm on your side. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And he wants to turn around and say, yeah, but uh, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. One of you guys is going to stab me in the back. Jesus knows that Satan has already entered into Judas, and Judas is there amongst them. And he says, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So please understand this. Jesus is making a very heavy and a very important statement. He's saying evil is necessary. And Jesus is going to use evil in the plots of Satan for his glory. He has to go to the cross. He has to be killed. But please understand this, people. He is also saying, yeah, it's going to have to happen. And Jesus uses it for his glory. But you know what? Woe to that man through whom it happens. You don't want to be that guy. There's a special spot in hell for Judas. Now, I'm sure if you could think of Judas's twisted mind and what he was thinking, and there are many people that can incorporate Judas's thinking today that would turn around and say, well, you know, I'm going to do something evil, but you know what? It's going to have a good outcome. You know, I'm going to do something, and it may be, but in the end, God's going to get glorified through it. So what? And Jesus says, well, you know what? Your life may be pathetic, and you may be doing evil, and God could be doing wonderful miracles because of your sin. He's going to do a miracle in someone else's life. 
but don't miss the back half of that problem, him to whom it happened. And there is still a punishment for the evil on which people would want to perpetrate in order for sometimes good to triumph over it. Please hear that. That kind of erodes, destroys, and, and eliminates that argument of, well, you know, God's going to work it all out for good. So what? What difference does it make? A little evil here, a little evil there. Please understand the uh, 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 woe, uh, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then finally, it's very important that we get now into a very strange argument. Here Jesus is coming into the scene. He's talking about the love of God. He's talking about the Passover. He's talking about the weakness of the Jews. And in the midst of saying, hey, one of you guys is going to stab me in the back, all of a sudden they began to question, verse 23, among themselves, uh, which of them uh, who would do this thing? So they're going, what do you mean one of us is going to stab you in the back? Someone's going to, who amongst us would, Jesus, we're your disciples. We're all good people here. There's a backstabber amongst us? And so they're all looking around. They're questioning. And out of that, very important to notice, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. So now starts a pecking order, if you would. And they're going to sit down there and say, well, I'm better than Johnny over here, and Peter's better than this, and, and, and Andrew's better than that. And they start to squabble like little kids. Now, it's important for us to recognize that man will rip apart another man to prove himself to be, to be better than someone else. And please listen, we develop that thought throughout the text that man likes to step on one another, to lord it over, to dominate one another because they're greedy, they're envious. And there's an evil side of man. I think we've developed that quite well to this point inside of Luke. Jesus is now offering us another alternative on why one man would step on another man to try to prove to be greater. And listen to this. Because Jesus is telling us because there's a root of fear within inside of any one of us because we know our weaknesses. I think all the disciples are saying, one of us is going to stab you in the back. And I think all 12 of them turned around and had a good, solid heart check and says, that could be me. I could be the one stabbing Jesus in the back. I didn't think they all turned around. None of them knew that, oh, that's obviously Judas. He's the, you know, traitor, you know, weasel treasurer. Everyone knows the treasurer is a thief. They didn't say that. They turned around and each one of them said, I bet you that's me. And, and if that's me, I don't want that to come out. So I'm going to be preoccupied with putting someone else down. And if I can show you that Johnny's a bigger jerk than me, well, that kind of gets me off the hook, doesn't it? And so I'm going to spend my whole life pointing out people's flaws because, listen to this, it's not that I want power. It's not that I'm trying to be authoritative. It's not that I'm greedy. It's because I'm afraid of who I am. And you are seeing that being brought out here where the disciples are now starting to squabble over, well, who's the greatest? And you think of what a crazy argument to break out at the Last Supper. I'm better than you are, na 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 And you want to sit down and say, hey, kids, 
Do you understand? This is evening crisis. Jesus has been beckoning. He's got to go to his death. He's going to suffer. He's desiring to spend his last meal with you because he just loves you. And all you can do is sit down and act like a child and fight and squabble. So please bear in mind that within inside of you and I is a deep, dark desire to be accepted. With inside of us, we know, listen to this, that any one of us, any one of us here today is more than capable of stabbing Jesus in the back. Do you, do you ever look at yourself? And it's easy to say, well, I could see Billy Bob over there stabbing Jesus in the back. He's, you know, barely got his walk together, but I would never do that. But if you wanted to be honest with yourself, you'd start to look at your life and start to say, it's in me to be a Judas. It's there. I fight it. I argue it. I don't want to admit it. But it's there. I, 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 could, I, I could be that man. As much as we want to throw rocks at Judas and think of how crazy he is and we always you know, look at him, you sometimes have to put a little sympathy, empathy, whatever it is that you'd look at him and say, hey, I, 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 you know what? It could be us. And I believe this squabbling is starting straight out of this, you know, it could be me. It could be me. And so if you would, he turns around and he said, um, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Since you guys are fighting over who's best. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Whatever title you want to throw in there, man just loves to puff himself up with a big old title. And then he says, but not so among you. You're supposed to be better than that, guys. Come on. We're not here to sit down and squabble over things. This is my last meal. This is me loving you, and we're here to spend time together. It's not supposed to be. On the contrary, on the contrary, he who is greatest among you, would you really like to be God's hot shot for the hour? Well, then, if that be true, then you need to let him be as the younger. And I love that. Me having two older brothers, I like that. <laughs> and he's telling you, Dave, when you're the youngest and have two brothers, you were trained something in life. You were trained on how to be a good believer in God. Because as the younger, the little brother, you never got what you wanted. At least out of pushing and shoving and manipulating your way to the top. I could get what I wanted sometimes, but it was definitely out of sympathy from my mother that said, oh, the poor little guy that's always forgotten will take care of him. Uh, I definitely was that middle excluded child. I had, you know, two older brothers. I had an older sister that passed away than both of the brothers. But basically it was my two older brothers raising when I was growing up. And then, of course, I had the little sister, which got spoiled. And then Everyone was like, oh, do I got a, another kid in the middle, Dave? Uh, I guess there was one around called that name someplace, you know. And in a sense, I, I read this and Jesus is saying, you know, that's the way life is supposed to, that's the way you're supposed to take life. As that child that's not supposed to push and to shove and to defend himself, but to sit down and have that, the, the littlest attitude, a younger, to be the one that seems to be insignificant because you're not, Having an agenda, force to push things forward. And he goes, let him be as the younger. And he who governs, you really want to see power, as he who serves. And this is an eye-opening statement for, for who is greater. Uh, who's greater here? He who sits at the table or he who serves. 
Which do you think you'd rather be? The guy who sits back and says, boy, go get me something to drink. Or the one that goes, get something to drink and says, yes, sir. No, sir. Well, Jesus answers the question. Is it not the one who sits at the table? You'd think that would be greater, but that's not the way the kingdom of God works. He says, yet I am among you as the one who serves. Do you hear that? That's written plain English, clear uh, as a bell that you should be able to understand that in God's kingdom, it is not push and shove and make yourself better by any stretch of the measure. It is allowing, allowing God to work through you. And Jesus says, since, hey, I'm the number one top dog in the kingdom here, guess what I do? I'm here to wash your feet. That's a, a radical, strange, bizarre view of God. That God would be coming up to you and saying, man, I love you. I want to spend my last day with you. And I have great and wonderful plans for you. And you don't have to push or shove your way to the top to make anything happen in your life. I, I wish you could understand that simple, basic premise. That's what we call, according to the New Testament, that's what we call grace. Grace is what we believe that we're saved by when Jesus comes into our life. We were lost. There's no hope for me in anything that I would ever do. And God comes up to me and says, Dave, I love you. Why? I don't have a good reason other than it's in my character to love you. And I'm going to build a whole new covenant, an arrangement between you and I that's going to be based upon, listen to this, grace. It's not you upholding your end of the deal and me upholding mine of the deal. That would have the expectation that you could actually do something. God comes into our new covenant and he says, I'm assuming you to do nothing. You and I can't fathom that. What do you mean? You're expecting nothing out of me, God? No, I'm not expecting anything out of you, Dave. You don't have too much to offer me. Well, thanks, God. I'd like to think I got something to offer you. And God says, well, that's where you're deceived, Dave. You really don't. You're not as good as you think you are. Uh, I'm not? Yeah, you think you're better than somebody? You're really not, Dave. But I'm a pastor, God, and I read and study my Bible every day, and I tithe all that I give doesn't really impress me. That, that doesn't make my day, Dave. God comes up to me and he says, Dave, I love you because I love you. And that's all that it's going to take to make this arrangement work is my love is sufficient for you. My power and my strength are sufficient. It's enough for you. You don't have to bring anything to the table. Nothing? Well, that's... That, that, that. Well, what if I'm a believer? Does that mean I can go out and, let's say I want to go shoot 12 grandmas? I'm still a Christian? That has nothing to do with this scenario, Dave. Hopefully, if you understand what love and compassion is, you don't want to go shoot 12 little sweet grandmas. You'd like to be able to say, since God made my life better, maybe I can make someone else's life better. But the story in the, in the parable is the same. It doesn't matter what we have done. God can find favor and he finds grace with you and I, irregardless of anything that we can do. 
And you have to understand that Jesus' new covenant is, has nothing to do with who's the best and who's the greatest and what can we do. You've got to be as that younger. And Jesus is coming in and he says, I'm the guy that's getting you the water, Dave. Get that in your head. You're sitting at the table. Me? Aren't you the God? Aren't you the big head honcho? Don't I need to get you the glass of water? Not in my book, says God. It's contrary to the way the world works. It's completely backwards, upside down, and opposite to everything you understand about life. Wow. I'm on the same side of you? And so he said, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, they exercise their lordship over them. Those who exercise authority of them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? It is not he who think, question mark, but yet I am a, uh, among you as the one who serves. And notice what he says here, but the thing in your favor is, he says, verse 28, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Man, you're there with me, says Jesus, and I appreciate that. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, a future event when your wine is fermented, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You're going to do something that surpasses the covenant of Israel. You'll judge them. And so the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So here he's coming up and he's calling him Simon, Simon Peter. He's calling him by his old name and he's saying, you know what, Peter? Si uh, Satan has asked uh, for you. He's got your number, man, and he's looking for you and he wants to sift you as wheat. I don't know. I wonder if, if Satan's first choice would have been to have uh, 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 Jesus uh, uh, stabbed in the back and betrayed by Peter. That would have been really weird, huh? And I wonder if that was Satan's first choice. And, and Jesus comes up and he says, I'm praying for you. That ain't going to happen. He's saying he wants to sift you. He wants to go through you and, and find out what you're made out of. And, and, and you know what? I'm begging. I'm praying for you, serving you that glass of water because you're the master here, Peter. I went to bat for you and to stop that process. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So Jesus says, I'm praying that you wouldn't fail. But when you leave me, i.e. failed, you're going to come back and you'll be stronger because you do fail. But you're going to fail, Peter, because of your own, listen to this, your own weakness. But he said to him, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both the prison and the death. What are you talking about me leaving you? What are you talking about me stabbing you in the back? God, man, if there's anybody on your side, I'm the man. Trust me, I'm the greatest here. I could go to prison and to death for you, Jesus. I'd die for you, man. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, give me a break, man. And the expression is, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. That's Jesus' way of saying, buddy, before you could drop a hat, Peter, you're going to stab me in the back three times. What? 
Hey, Peter's like, man, I got it, man. I can come right. I'm there for you. And all of you and I, we're Peter's. We love to sit down and say, Jesus, I'm your man. You can count on me. I'd die for you. And Jesus, once again, he's looking at you and I and he's saying, give me a break. You really think you're going to have what it takes to take on the devil as he's trying to sift you? Do you really think you're going to stand up and just give a glorious death? He's looking. He's looking at you and I and he's saying, please hear this. You do not have what it takes to make any of this covenant work. Oh, there's nothing I can do? You don't have what it takes. And God is understanding of that point. And the beauty of the gospel is that word, nevertheless, and that's one word, that you would turn around and say, nevertheless, God loves me. And, and, and when I understand that, you know, me as a sinner, I struggle and I fail and I'm weak and I'm inept. And I go, God, you can't love someone like me. I, I, I know that I could be the Judas. And Jesus, you might love a lot of other people. I could understand you loving Chris Rogers, but I can't understand you loving me. We all think that. Every single one of us think that. Every single one of us comes up with this huge fear. God, you, you would love, no, you can't love me. And Jesus is trying his best to reassure and to reaffirm him to say, I see you, I love you, and I am still going to work with you. And what that does is it, it causes me to have a proper relationship with God. Listen to this, that I can come into a walk with God and go, there's not a whole lot of expectations on me then if you're just calling me a failure, Jesus. If you think anything I could do is a failure, well, I, I don't want to let you down, God, so I can continue to be who I am. Now, true grace does come across that way. I might as well just be a failure then. And you have the freedom inside of Christ to continue to be a complete failure. But grace is a wonderful thing. When it's truly understood, it, it becomes a, a motivating factor in our life that causes us to want to, out of our inner desire, to now to do the right thing. You mean, God, you're not expecting anything out of me besides failure? You don't really think a whole lot of me, but yet you love me. Well, if that be true, I, I guess I could, I could, I don't have to be a total ungrateful bum. I, 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 I could go out and get somebody else a glass of water if you asked me to. Since you're in the business of serving water, I, I'd be more than happy to do that. I'd be more than happy to love that miserable, nasty person that's unlovable because that's me and somebody else might be just like me and I could get along. You forgave me of my sins. I guess I could forgive somebody else for some of their problems, I guess. And now, with that understanding, you're coming to the true dynamic of real Christianity. One that operates out of no expectations on your part, but just nothing besides the love of God. Pure, unadulterated grace. And when you understand that God loves you through grace, you're able to share, shed, and to have a little bit more grace come upon you to give to someone else. And that is pure Christianity, right then and there. And I'm telling you, there is a million Christians, billion Christians, it seems, that are just locked in this works-based mentality. 
well, I'm going to go to heaven because I ain't never killed nobody and I ain't never cheated with my neighbor's wife. So I guess that makes me good enough. And I know plenty of people that have murdered and slept with other people's wives, so I'm better than them. <laughs> Come judgment day, I know I'm better than them. You want to know how many people in this world think that way? How many people in the body of Christ think that way? And Jesus is slamming home a rock-solid, bedrock truth in order for us to understand what it truly is to have a relationship with him is for us to turn around and say, man, we're miserable wrecks. And here comes Peter, and he says, man, I'm your man. I'm your man, Jesus. And he's going, give me a break, Peter. Look at you. For the cock crows, here we are in the middle of the night. Man, you think you could stand up for me? Hey, Jesus says, he, we're going to get into this part later, later on in the chapter next week, when he says, hey, let's go pray. Can you pray with me for an hour? And Peter's there snoozing away. I'll die for you, Jesus, but just don't ask me to pray for an hour. <laughs> and Jesus is going, hey, caramba, you know, this is just, you know, give me a break. And so if you would... He says, he says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. You've stuck with me, and I'm pleased to hear that. He's like, I'm glad you're there with me right now. And I bestowed upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I know you're going to be letting me down. And he says, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he says, Peter, the, the rooster shall not crow until this day before you deny me three times. And then he turns around. And this is, I please understand, we're going into a complicated passage here. And he says, verse 35, and he said to them, and he says, when I sent you without money bag, Okay, so remember when I sent you on your little missionary journey and you went out and you cast out all them demons and all these wonderful things were happening? When I sent you without a money bag, a knapsack, or sandals, did you ever lack anything? And they turn around and they're going, oh yeah, when you sent us out on that missionary trip and we had the power of the Holy Spirit working through us and, and matter of fact, everything was taken care of. We just went out. We didn't even take two staffs, two tunics, do nothing. We just, come to think of it, you do take care of me, Jesus. And they said, well, nothing. Now, he turns around and he makes a very difficult statement. And then he said to them, well, but now, he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, he says, you let him sell his garment and buy one. For I, better to be naked and have a sword than, to, <laughs> you know. He says, for I say to you that that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And very importantly, I like this. It says, for the things concerning me have an end. And then they turn around and they go, so they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he says to them, that's good enough. Let's go. Now, this is hard to read this passage. And that's why we at Calvary Chapel like to believe in putting something into what's called context and understanding what this is saying in light of the whole chapter of what Jesus is teaching. And it seems as if Jesus is making a hugely contradictory statement. He's now saying, you need to grab some money, you need to go grab a sword, and we're going to go fight. And a lot of people take this verse and they said, well, 
There's good reason for me to be the way that I am. Even Jesus said you gotta go take the sword and buy one every now and then, and now's the time to fight. Now, please hear me out that Jesus is being extremely sarcastic within these passages. You, you, you have got to hear that. This is Jesus turning around and first off, he knows that they're going to come with the whole horde of the Roman cohort. They're going to come with all the people against him. There's going to be 500 soldiers that are going to arrest him. And <coughs> quite obviously, uh, uh, two swords doesn't quite do the job. So it's not like Jesus is really trying to mount an offensive with the sword. Obviously, Peter, who says, look, there's two swords, he's got one of the swords with him. And Peter goes up and he cuts off the uh, guy's ear uh, that was trying to arrest Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He picks the ear back up, puts it back on, and he says, look, you knucklehead. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword, is what Peter says. There's what Jesus tells Peter. And so you go, Jesus is not into sword play. He's not into cutting off people's ears, and he's not trying to do anything. Obviously, as Jesus stands before Pilate, he's going to tell them, hey, I am not, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, he said, my disciples would fight. But my disciples do not fight. He's specifically saying that we, as believers, do not need to turn around and to pack up and to carry uh, armament, swords, and pistols with us in order to do God's will. Uh, I clearly do not believe that I'm going to accomplish God's will with a pistol at my side. I, I'm very emphatic about that. If you want to have a pistol, a rifle, you want to do certain things, that's your own business. But please do not say that you're going to carry out God's will and God's telling you to go up and shoot people, kill people, and that sometimes we need to bear arms to fulfill God's will. That is completely a gross misnomer of this passage. With that being said, though, uh, uh, you are finding out that what Jesus is doing, and please understand this in context, is he is explaining that, you know what? They're going to arrest me, and they're going to hang me out on the street to die here pretty soon. And in order for them to do that, it's Scripture says that I have to be numbered with the transgressors, right? So Jesus is saying, guess what? i got to be arrested, and they're going to call me a bad guy, right? So uh, in order for me to be one of the bad boys... Uh, I guess I should uh, run around and grab my little sword and go, woohoo, I'm a bad boy. And uh, so he's telling you that Scripture has to be fulfilled. And he is saying that Scripture is going to be fulfilled because uh, 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 he's going to be out there with a the sword trying to do something wrong that would justify why that they're trying to kill him. And Jesus says, they've got to kill me for something. I mean, what else are they got to kill me for? Feeding 5,000 people? Oh, I raised a few uh, 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 people from the dead. Uh, uh, I've healed the sick. That makes a terrible trumped-up charge. And Jesus says, well, give him a little bit of ground in order to, through his sarcasm, in order to find cause so that he could die for the sins of the world. And you just have to understand a little bit of the dilemma of God who is, says, I have to give the world some excuse in order to how to kill me, but uh, 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 I'll give them this much. I'll, I'll go take a sword with me. Even though... <laughs> Peter cuts off the guy's ear, he picks it back up, even though he tells you quite plainly and clearly that he is not going to ever accomplish anything through the sword. And this passage, it's stuck right in the midst of this passage, and it's, it's begging you and I to be able to turn on our brain and say, and I do read this, and I go, Jesus, couldn't you just shut up about that? I mean, me as a pastor trying to teach the congregation about love, I mean, I'm really working it really good here, and then you throw this bone in here, and it's, ugh, ugh, it's hard. I, I don't like this passage. <laughs> and you almost say, Jesus, you know, you didn't have to say that. You, you'd almost go, Luke, could you just have left that out? 
And in a sense, it, it, it only reinforces the greater calling of what Luke is begging us to do, what Jesus is calling us to do. And please bear in mind, it's causing us to be what's called an independent free thinker. And sometimes the Bible is riddled with certain things that just you trip you right up with a, a, a real good sermon. And you go, Jesus, why are you throwing that in here? Because Jesus is saying, I, I need you to think. And when I tell you something, I'm going to throw a curve at you now and then. I need to see if you're really walking on the truth or if a curveball really throws you off track. That's weird, Jesus. You know, I'm having enough time fighting the devil, the world, and my mother right now, and, and you've got to throw curves at me. Thanks. It, it causes us to fall on our knees and to seek diligently exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. And I am sorry, but the body of Christ at large is extremely ignorant on exactly what grace is. The church has become nothing more than the Pharisees of Israel. We watched Israel fall flat on its face where they didn't understand the heart and the love of God. And if they, who were greater, smarter, and God's chosen people than any of us Gentiles could be, and I firmly believe that, if they could fail, well then certainly, except by the grace of God, there go I. And you and I had better keep our brain engaged at all times to understand exactly what grace is and that we have to sit down and say anything that I could do with a sword, a gun in my hand is a mockery compared to what could happen through the power of God in my life. And when you come to a, a, a new covenant relationship with God by coming down and saying, Lord, I, I offer you nothing and God, your love is forgiving and working in my life, Things start to change in your life so that you are able to be able to say, Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you right now. And then at that moment, you are going to experience the power of God in your life. And, and I can only tell you that when you come to a place of actually having the Holy Spirit in your life, you will come to a whole new revelation of what God is. Now please bear in mind, this book of Luke is part one of a two-part series. Part two is called the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see that the church is going to be given the nuclear device of the century. It is going to be given the granddaddy of all bombs that are going to blow up any boogeyman that we could ever face. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And what Jesus wants us to know above and beyond all other things is that when you can experience the Spirit of God where your life, you will start to tap into a source, a life force, that will actually start to produce something. You and I know that in our own strength and everything that we have, we can produce nothing but maybe be a Judas. That's about all I can do. And when I sit down there and actually drink of the living water that God has to offer me, I can now start to feel the power, the strength, the victory that's in Christ. I will not just be me and who I am trying to impress God. That's a life of works. God wants to bring me into a life of grace where something not of me, 
something that is deep and strong and a river of torrents of living water can come bursting out of my life. That is a bomb that can stop a bullet. That is a bomb that can kill the boogeyman. That is a bomb that can protect me and, and love me and, and give me the shield and the strength that I need so that I say, Lord, that's the only thing I want is that spirit just flowing through my veins. A sword doesn't cut it. Ask yourself, Pastor Dave, you've got a hundred, you know, hordes of evil people coming at you. What are you going to do to stop that evil horde of a hundred people? Are you going to pull out your M16? you got to pull out your sword and you're going to stop that horde of a hundred people? Or would you rather be able to say in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone, and they all fall over backwards and wipe them out? I'll take the Holy Spirit. It's a much better weapon. But we can't think like that, can we? Oh, no. They got the hordes of a hundred masses coming at us. We got to, I'm going to stand there and fight. And God goes, that's the losing way, people. That's the old way. That's you thinking you're going to do something in your strength. Grace, grace, grace is turning around and saying, Lord, you fight the battle for me. You can take on a hundred million boogeymen. I can't even whoop on one of them. And when you start to walk, humbly before your God, allowing God through the Spirit to move through you, you would realize that Jesus is saying, you and that sword is a total farce. It's totally sarcasm. Yeah, go get the sword. Yeah, that's you, Peter, three times before the morning, you're the cock's going to crow. Yeah, give me a break. And Jesus is deliberately showing us the, the fallacy of man thinking in his pride he can do something. And you know what? You and I have to understand that that is a daily battle in mine and yours heart every single day. And Jesus wants to bring you to a place of complete freedom so that we can say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Lord, I'm going to trust you. You're all I got. You're expecting nothing of me? If that's what you're expecting... I think, we can, I think we can work something out, God. You take my failures, I'll take your love. And God says, I'm willing to do it every single time because I love you. That's my character. Trust me. Go into the village. You're going to find a guy. It's going to be all taken care of. You don't have to know all the details. You don't have to know what tomorrow brings. You don't have to know what's in front of you. God wants to do a wonderful work in your life if you would just let him. Just let him. That's all. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, stand and close in prayer. Father, we want to ask your spirit to be here, Father. We do need that bomb to go off, Father. Father, we know that uh, you have a plan and a purpose here. And that our plans and our skill and our strength turns us into nothing more than a Judas. Father, do a mighty, mighty work in our life. I pray, Father, for your grace to penetrate into our hearts and minds and that we, Father, could become your servants, your friends, and that we'd work on the same team as you. Father, we need you. Father, if any of us here are fighting, struggling, I pray we just surrender that we would be able to let go of our fears and our doubts, our anxieties, and, and even for us to know what we are inside, Father. Just let it all go, Father, and come before you naked. And to know that you're going to accept us, Father, and that you have a plan for us. Father, I thank you for this love, and I pray that this would be etched on our hearts and our minds, Father, that we would always go according to grace and not according to any other standard. 
Bless this church, Father. Bless those that came today, Father. Pour out your spirit upon them this week so it would be electrifying. I just pray you just pour out your Holy Spirit upon this congregation so that we could make a difference to a dying world. We thank you, Father. We praise you and we give you all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.